Well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. This is week 3 of our Advent series called Come and Behold. And uh, we're looking this morning at the birth narrative. Uh, This is, what are we, five days away from Christmas? And so this is the time where we want to look uh, very carefully at uh, the story, the the arrival of Jesus, the incarnation. Uh, Next week will be week 4 where we're going to look at the second Advent. We're going to close this big arc here, as it were, in terms of this big story. And we'll look at uh, what does it mean for us now that the person of Christ has come, uh, now what? What does that mean for me on Tuesday? What does it mean for me and my family, my life, and so on? So that's what we'll do next week. Uh, It's become a bit of a joke in my family, even my extended family, that I'm not very good at fixing things. And so if you have something in your car or your house that's broken, that needs repaired, uh, most people recognize I'm... Uh, probably the last guy to ask on that stuff. I, in fact, by helping, I should put helping in quotation marks, uh, I may only make things worse. Right now, the gas fireplace at our house is not working. And I have, uh, just about every night, I go over, I stand in front of it, kind of stare at it for a few minutes. I may shuffle things around a little bit. Um, but then I do what theologians do. I chalk it up to mystery. And I say, I don't really know what I'm going to do here, so uh, why even try? Uh, We did have somebody who came over from our church the other day who I think has uh, adequately diagnosed the problem, so we're going to hopefully remedy that soon as things get colder. Now, I I hate to say this, but uh, this is a bit of a dangerous admission um, because I know that it may very well be held against me, but I think the reality is if I really wanted to figure this thing out, whether it's the fireplace or something else that's broken, I could probably do the research, put in the effort, expend the energy. I could probably figure out how to fix things. I mean, after all, you, know, you can just about Google any instructional video, right? The, the car, your, your brake pads are wearing thin on your car. There's a Google instructional video for that, right? You, um, you, you don't know how to fix something. You, you put a stain on your carpet. You can Google the right solution for that. If you have a headache, you can go to Web. MD, and you can find what the remedy might be. Or if it's me, I usually just scare myself to death and conclude that I'm dying soon. But uh, you can find just about a solution for anything online if you just take the time uh, to look. Because of the resources that are available that, frankly, have not, have been, not ever been available to us, the technology, uh, the, the information at our fingertips, it's easy for us to conclude that there's no problem that we can't fix. There's no problem that we can't solve if we just put in the right amount of effort, which is fine until we encounter a problem that we have no idea what to do about, a problem that we realize even if we had all the time in the world, we still can't really fix it. Like when we experience that fog of despair that creeps in and settles over us, and it doesn't seem to dissipate. When we can't find the motivation to do anything, if you felt like this during the pandemic, I just don't want to do anything right now. Or when we can't shake the feeling of guilt over a past sin. Or we have this seemingly unbreakable, destructive habit that we can't kick, and we just keep doing the same thing over and over We know the harm that it's going to cause. It's not that we don't understand it. We just can't seem to gain victory over it. Or when our spouse says to us, you know, I just feel like we've grown apart. 
I'm not sure that I love you anymore. Or we have a friend who says to us, I'm not going to be able to spend any time with you anymore. I just, there's just some things I have to eliminate in my life, and I'm sorry, but I'm just not going to have time anymore. Or we have a daughter who informs us that she's marrying an unbeliever. Or a son who tells us that he's turning away from the faith and wants nothing to do with the faith in which he was instructed. There are some problems that remind us ever so painfully that we can't, in fact, fix everything. In fact, there are plenty of things we have no idea or no ability to remedy. Well, what Jesus came to address is one of those types of problems. This morning, we're going to look at the birth of Jesus, an account which is loaded with deep uh, theological truths, and we're going to look at the nature of this salvation that God provides. You know, so often, particularly in this region of the country, we'll hear people say something like, well, I got saved when I was a kid, or uh, I didn't get saved until I was an adult. And if you're not from the Christian faith or you haven't grown up in church, you, you don't, that just sounds strange. What do you mean you got saved when God miraculously brought my mother who was into alcohol and a single mom at the time brought her to saving faith? When God, by His Spirit, uh, convicted her of her sin and uh, caused her to recognize God's holiness and then turn to Christ in faith, she immediately then called my dad, her ex-husband at the time, and said, John, you're not going to believe this. I got saved last night. Well, what do you think his response was? Saved from what? I didn't know you were in jeopardy. A key verse in this passage we're going to look at this morning is verse 21, where the angel tells Mary, the mother of Jesus, that you shall call his name Jesus... For he will save his people from their sins. But even that begs a few questions, doesn't it? Like, what's the benefit of this salvation? What, what happens to people who are saved? And why do his people even need saving? A question I think uh, especially pertinent in our day and age when everybody we listen to on the radio, on TV, every pundit or talk show host is so quick to persuade us that everybody's good and everybody's fine. And also a question, what do those who are saved immediately do? So that's kind of what we're going to look at this morning. What's the benefit of this, of this salvation? Why do His people need to be saved? And what do those who are saved immediately do? So let's look at the text together. Uh, we're going to cover Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Let me uh, just read the text in its entirety. He reads the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus." 
So Matthew is the author of this account. Matthew, as you may recall, one of the original disciples, and uh, he was sort of a despised person, hated among not just his peers, but outsiders. But Jesus chose him to make him one of his own followers. And he begins this account by telling us that Jesus' mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And before they came together, she was found to be with child. In other words, Mary became pregnant before Joseph and Mary were ever intimate. Before they ever came together, it was discovered that Mary was with child. They were betrothed, but they hadn't consummated their marriage. So I think a little bit of historical background is necessary here. What happened in the first century was a set of parents would determined to, to give their daughter in marriage to a particular man. Now, we know that as arranged marriages. They didn't call it that at the time because that's just the way that marriage worked. And typically, in fact, sometimes a, a, a parents would actually decide to give away their daughter in marriage when she was only 13, 14, 15 years old. We don't know how old Mary was at this point, but uh, by all accounts, she was probably a young teenager. And just think about that. If you're a parent, I have a 14-year-old. If you're a parent, just what this would have been like and, and how it would have felt and maybe the emotional uh, uh, roller coaster that it must have been. Well, the groom-to-be, so the young man who would become the groom, would pledge certain obligations to the father of the bride. And when he fulfilled those obligations, according to the marriage covenant, the marriage contract, the bride then came under the authority of her new husband, but she didn't necessarily move in with her new husband at that time. In fact, she would remain with her parents. She would actually sometimes remain with her parents for even up to a year. A year would sometimes pass between the betrothal and the marriage ceremony, at which point the two would consummate their marriage by the sexual union, and then they would move in together, live together in holy matrimony. Well, apparently the situation that I just read in, in Matthew chapter 1 includes everything but the final stage of the process. So Joseph is Mary's husband, but the two have not consummated their marriage, which makes it uh, of course, shocking to Joseph that his uh, wife is with child, but it was not just shocking, it was also scandalous. It was also an egregious offense that would have attracted the attention of everybody around them. This is a, such an offense that would have given Joseph legitimate reason in that day to publicly divorce Mary, and not only that, but to make a very public spectacle of Mary. According to Old Testament law, the punishment for unchastity by a young woman who'd been betrothed was stoning. So she was to be stoned to death. Now, by the time we get to Jesus' day, this was not that typical, although it did still happen, but it was very rare. Um, however, um, what she would have surely suffered, Mary that is, is she would have gone through a very public trial um, her offenses would have been trotted out in front of everyone, and she would have been made an absolute public spectacle, put to shame in front of all the people responding to their sneers and their judgment and their condemnation. She would have been stigmatized, not just at that moment, but for her whole life. So she would have been rendered a second-class citizen for the rest of her life, forever stigmatized. She would have been... Uh, branded, as it were, as an adulteress. 
Now, one could argue, in fact, there are plenty uh, who have argued, that Joseph being a just man, we're told in in verse 19, which simply means he was a meticulously law-abiding citizen, that he had every right, that is knowing what he knew then, to immediately subject Mary to such punishment. In fact, we could even take it a, a step further and say that it was Joseph's responsibility because of what Mary had done, or at least what he thought she had done, to actually put her through this very terrible shaming. One historian says, infidelity during betrothal made divorce virtually obligatory. So Joseph could have made an example of Mary, but he didn't. Verse 19 says says he was unwilling to put her to shame, and he resolved to divorce her quietly. Instead of divorcing her, Joseph did something uh, perhaps just as scandalous. He took on Mary's shame. Talk about humbling oneself. He would have been the one to suffer the ridicule now because the people around him would have said, this guy's weak, this guy's soft, this guy's whipped, this guy doesn't really respect the law. How can we call him a just man? So he would have actually been labeled all kinds of things, a coward, a fool, weak. Joseph would actually endure this suffering because of his love for Mary, which is, of course, an incredible act of grace one which points us to the grace of Christ. Here's our first point this morning. If you're taking notes, by sparing his wife from the shame and punishment that such a violation from the law demanded, Joseph points us to Jesus. Joseph is a picture. Joseph is what theologians call a type of Christ. Instead of subjecting Mary to the punishment that the law said she deserved, Joseph actually stepped in and stood in her place, himself receiving the brunt and the humiliation. He took the condemnation. He took the shame that Mary was due. He endured the ridicule. He suffered the scorn. He dealt with the insults. Well, for us, a violation of God's law makes us subject to the very same things that it appeared Mary was. Guilt, shame, humiliation, condemnation, all of those things. Every single violation of the law, which by which, by which I mean all the commands of God, every single solitary violation of the law, even one offense, makes us guilty of all of it, the Scriptures tell us. So if we've sinned in any way against God, which we all have, we then stand as guilty of violating all of it. Because God made us, we are uh, personally accountable to Him. It's His law that we have been uh, commanded to keep, and it's His law that we have broken. It's His glory that we've fallen so short of, according to Romans 3. And because of that, our persistent failure to keep God's commands... We experience guilt and we suffer shame. But Jesus, this is so good, unwilling to put us to shame, stood in our place, endured the ridicule that we deserve, the scorn and shame that we should have received. As the psalmist says in Psalm 69, which the Apostle Paul will tell us in Romans 15 is about Jesus, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Now, let me show you how. Look at verses 20 and 21 again. 
But he, that is Joseph, considered these things. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, so Joseph has this plan, which is to very quietly divorce Mary, not to put her through the public spectacle, not to make a, a, an example of her, but his plans are changed when he receives a visit from the angel who tells him that the one in Mary's womb is actually from the Holy Spirit. Even though Mary has never been with a man, the Holy Spirit has come upon her and she is with child. The church traditionally has, has confessed and, and really marveled at the virgin birth, um, especially if you come from a Roman Catholic background. But there's nothing in all the scriptures that suggests that there was anything unusual or spectacular about the birth. It was, by all accounts, a normal, painful human birth. Uh, But what is uh, spectacular, what is unique, what is supernatural is the conception. The second person of the Trinity, the forever existing God the Son, became fully human, conceived as the Holy Spirit, makes Jesus a living person in human life. That's not the only, uh, can you imagine hearing that news, but that's not the only earth-shattering news. The angel also tells Joseph in verse 21, she will bear a son, you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. So, you know, sometimes as parents, we, in order for our kids to really get it, we try to think about different ways to say things, and we phrase them differently, we tell different stories, and then still, of course, our kids will come back and say, you know what so-and-so said to me? As it's this brand new novel thing they've never heard, even though we've said it a number of times. But we try different ways to really impress upon our children you know, certain things. Well, here the angel of the Lord says, okay, you're going to call his name Jesus, which is from the Hebrew word which Yeshua, which means God saves. But as if that weren't enough, the angel also says, so that there's no ambiguity here, even though the name means God saves, the angel also specifies what Jesus came to do. He will save his people from their sins. Now notice, he doesn't say he will save his people from the sins of the world. He says he will save his people from their sins. How often do we conclude that the real evil in the world, the real problem in the world is is the sin that's out there. You know, the real sinners are the politicians. The real sinners are the abusers. The real sinners are the sexual deviants. The real sinners are the racists or the rioters. The real sinners are out there, but the selfishness in our own hearts, well, that's not really that big of a deal. The fact that every moment of every day we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength the way that we've been commanded to. In fact, in the commandment that Jesus says is the greatest commandment. The fact that we fail to do that, well, that's not really that huge of a deal. You know, we live in in very tense times. I was scheduled a couple of weeks ago. I had an appointment in the afternoon for for a pre-marriage counseling appointment. And as I got into this pre-marriage counseling appointment, I realized that I was going to have to go much deeper than just dealing with the husband and wife-to-be, but their families. And we had a number of things. We see that, that... We see families at odds with each other. We see people pointing their fingers at each other. We see people accusing and labeling people. 
people pointing out so quickly the sin in other people. I wonder what difference it would make if we recognize that the greatest sin is not their sin. The most egregious offenses are not their offenses, but our sin, our self-centeredness, our rebellion. I wonder how it would change the tone of our conversations if rather than looking out, looking at the outside, looking at everyone else as the greatest sinners, if we realize just how far we have fallen from God's standard of perfection. I think it would, frankly, I think it would really change our conversations. A New Testament scholar, Frederick Dale Bruner, writes, Jesus will not rivet his people's attention from their own evils. He will not focus his people's attention on an external enemy, as most radical movements do. Nor will he forge a burning hatred for enemies by which to ignite a revolution. Of course, Jesus said, love your enemies. Jesus focuses his fire on the church's sins. This uh, same guy, Frederick uh, Bruner, he's written a commentary on Matthew that's 1,700 pages. It's a massive tome, kind of his magnum opus, kind of his greatest thing that he wrote. He's in his late 70s now, 77, 78. He spent 50-plus years studying the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And frankly, I think it's the best commentary available if you're going to do a study on it. It's a terrific book. Uh, But he says after 50-plus years of of studying the gospel of Matthew, he said one of the most eye-opening discoveries that he came to, after again, after five-plus decades, um, was that Jesus does not allow his people to demonize other enemies, but instead... Jesus concentrates his warnings uh, toward his own people. Even when Jesus talks about hell, he talks less about it as a place where the external enemies go, although certainly that's true. But Jesus talks about hell as an existential threat for people who think and say that they are the people of God. The point being, we are in serious danger spiritual danger, relational danger, emotional danger, when we spend our time looking at the evils of the world, but we fail to consider seriously the shortcomings and the evils of our own heart, our selfishness, our lack of love, our greed, our lust, our laziness, whatever it is. Well, fortunately, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus came to save his people from their sins which is a reference to God's forgiveness. Now, Matthew won't get into what this means, the salvation means, until later in in his book. And and this is an exposition of one particular passage, not a survey of Matthew, so we're not going to look at that. But Luke, in his first chapter of his Christmas story, his gospel narrative account, um, he actually tells us specifically what that salvation would be. He says it would be the forgiveness of sins. In other words, Jesus doesn't come just to take on our guilt and shame. He comes to take away our guilt and shame. Here's our second point. Every guilt-rendering offense against God is forgiven in Christ, and our sin-stained, shame-filled record is cleansed. Every single offense, people ask sometimes, well, is every sin the same? Isn't every sin the same? Well, the answer is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that Every single sin renders us guilty before God and deserving of His judgment. But actually, some sins are different. They have a greater impact and a greater weight than others. 
This is why, remember, when Jesus is on trial, he says, but he has committed the greater sin. And I don't know why, I didn't really have plans to say that, but uh, anyway, the, the point is that, yeah, sin, some sin, sins are all the same in the sense that they render us guilty before God, but praise God that every guilt-rendering offense against God is forgiven in Christ, and our sin-stained, shame-filled record is cleansed. I know this pastor who recently shared a, sh- a story about a young lady in his church who approached him and, and said, Pastor, would you be willing to meet with my mom? Um, she hates Christians and just hates Christianity altogether. So the pastor said, well, I mean, I, I guess, but like, I don't know, what do, you, what do you want me to do? He said, well, will you just meet with her and just listen to her? She's willing to meet with you if you'll just, if you'll just uh, you know, carve out the time. So I said, sure, I will. So they, they got it on the schedule and they, they made the appointment. She came in. When she came in to meet him, this lady's mom, he could tell right away that she was, she was hurting and very angry. Uh, this, the invective just flowed from her mouth, and it was this indictment against Christianity, Christians, and the church. And as this woman went on to describe some of the horrible things that she had endured from the church, the pastor could tell that, that there was a real hatred that was kind of bubbling over inside of her. And he sat there, and he listened, and he uh, responded uh, lovingly and affirmingly. He was patient with her as she spewed one terrible comment after another. And as she was winding down, she was kind of stunned, actually, that the pastor, he didn't uh, rebuke her. He didn't judge her. He listened to her. He tried to comfort her. He responded to her in kindness. She was so surprised by that. Before she left, she said, Pastor, can I tell you one thing? I want to tell you one thing I've never told anybody else before. I've never told this to anyone. She said, after all I've said to you, and I meant every word of it, I want you to know that every night when I go to bed and I turn off a light, before I fall asleep, I whisper, good night, Jesus. And what she said is what she was saying in a roundabout way was that deep in our hearts, we have this longing, this yearning to be right with God. We don't want to be separated from God. We want to be right with God. We, we want to have a relationship with our Heavenly Father that's been reconciled. I know a guy whose uh, father left him when he was very young. And this is not one of those stories where I talk about a guy, but I'm actually talking about me. This is a, another guy. That actually did ha- happen to me. But uh, this guy, his father left him when he was very young. And then when he got to be in his early 20s, this, his dad wanted to, to reconnect. And so this guy really wrestled with, do I want to do this? Do I want my dad in my life at this point? But he thought that, you know, as a professing believer, this was really his only option. And so he welcomed his dad back in his life. And his dad started hanging around. And one point, he invited his dad to church, and they went to church, and they had, this was a, a church plant, a small church, so they had a meal afterward. So he and his dad are sitting there at the meal after church, and one of the other pastors uh, came, around, came around and said and asked uh, this guy's dad, he said, hey, tell me about Billy when he was younger. What was he like? I mean, we know him now in the office, and we're around, but tell me what he was like when he was younger. And the dad said, you know, to be honest, I, I have no idea. I, I, I wasn't around when, when he was younger, but Billy, that's not his real name, but Billy has welcomed me back into his life. Well, later on, Billy was sharing with some other folks. He said, you know, I don't, I don't want to be the one to welcome back my dad who's gone astray. I want to be, I would rather have the prodigal son experience where I go and I blow and I go and my father welcomes me back. I don't want to be the one who has to welcome back my father. We have this, this longing, this yearning. It's actually bound up in the way we're created, to be right with God. 
to have God welcome us back into fellowship with Him. Well, the human condition, which is marked by all of those things that Mary was due, at least in Joseph's eyes, humiliation, alienation, separation, the human condition provides a problem that can only be fixed from outside of us. It's not something that we can remedy, despite all of our study and all of our efforts. If we are to be saved, salvation must come from without, not from within. We need a miracle of grace. Well, from Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. Jesus came to remove our guilt and to cleanse our shame. Those feelings of unworthiness, those feelings that I've blown it again and again, I'm not worthy of being accepted. The very feelings perhaps that Mary may have gone through as she's wrestling with, how did this happen to me? Those feelings that can creep in at any moment especially when we're mistreated, especially when we're abandoned or betrayed. Jesus endured the humiliation, the insults, the ridicule, even the shame of a cross to take away our shame and guilt, to present us before God as blameless and perfect. This is really the point of Christmas. And I love everything about Christmas. I love, I love the cookies and the treats and the, the decorations and the uh, the lights and the 70% off shopping deals. I, I, I love the mistletoe. and Isn't that right, babe? I love all of those things. I love all of those things. But that's not really what Christmas is about. Some of my kids are saying, really, Dad? That's so gross. That's not really what Christmas is about. What Christmas is about, the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. This friend of mine is a church planter in New York City, and he said, when he first started there, he used to go around and he would ask people, you know, when you think about Christianity, what, what do you think, what comes to your mind first? When you think about Christianity, what's the first thing? And he would get, almost all the answers had to do with moralistic improvement. Well, Christianity, Christianity means I've got to be a better person. Uh, Christianity means I've I got to do what I can to, to get right with God. Christianity means that I've got to stop doing whatever and start doing whatever. He said, I've never heard one time someone say to me what, the, what Christianity is really about. It's about forgiveness in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to continue. Look at uh, Matthew, uh, look at verse 23 again, and we're going to see um, how this takes place. Uh, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. How does God make forgiveness possible? How does he make it so that we could be forgiven? When my oldest daughter was a sophomore in high school, she came home from school one day and she told me about a presentation that a student gave in her language arts class. And I guess they had a variety of topics they could choose from, but uh, this student wanted to do a, a study on religion. And so in his talk, he, he's talking about religion. In his presentation, he said something like, the goal of every, every religion is the same, to do enough good works to get to God, to earn your way to God. He went on to say that, while the requirements are different for every religion, and certainly we know that to be true, he included Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, Mormonism. He said the requirements are different. Really, the message is the same. There is a set of works that a person must do in order to be accepted by God. And the reality is, he would have been right with everything he said if he just would have said, accept Christianity. Christianity makes clear the foolishness of trying to get to God by our good works, by our good behavior. 
but also announces the very good news that while we could never get to God, God Himself has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. In order for us to be reconciled to God, someone had to take the initiative, and it couldn't have been us because we were hopeless. Someone had to make it possible. And what Matthew makes clear in this birth announcement is that God took the initiative. God came down to us. In fact, Matthew makes it very clear, Jesus is God with us. If God hadn't made the first and most important move, we'd all be left with an impossible self-renovation project and without the resources or ability to make it happen. Now, the whole idea, we have to understand, the whole idea of God with us was not always good news. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, the idea of God with us was a terrifying thought. You survey the Old Testament, when God appeared to a people, He appeared in ways that were shocking and frightening. In the Old Testament, God appears as a whirlwind, a tornado. And as we who live in Huntsville, we know something about tornadoes. When God appeared to Abraham, He appeared as a smoking furnace. Uh, When God appeared to Israel, He was a pillar of fire. When God appeared to Moses, He said to Moses, you cannot even look at me and live. He said, you cannot even gaze at my glory and survive. So I'm going to pass before you and you can see, I guess what we might call just a little bit of the backside of God. Anything else would have claimed Moses' life. In the Old Testament, an encounter with God was a fear-inducing, life-threatening thing. But in Christ, God is fully present in the form of a servant, in the form of a redeemer, in the form of a baby who would obey God fully and perfectly as our substitute and whose obedience would be credited to us by faith alone. His death would satisfy the moral debt that we owed God. So the living God who demands perfection from every single one of His creatures would actually satisfy His own demand by sending His Son to live for us, to die for us, and to be raised again for us as a foreshadowing of what is in store for those who belong to Him. Now talk about a solution to our shame. If you ever ask yourself the question, why can't I stop doing this? Why can't I stop getting angry? Why can't I stop being impatient? Why can't I stop being selfish? Why can't I stop lusting? Why can't I stop being greedy? Whatever it is. And then that leads you to ask another question, that is, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? This is the quintessential question that is prompted by shame, what's wrong with me? Well, Jesus is the definitive answer to all of those questions. It's not as though God looked down from heaven and said, you know, those people right there, they're so much better than everyone else, they're so much more righteous, so much more pure that I'm going to send my son for them. No, God looked down and said to himself in his Trinitarian council, I'm going to take those wicked, rebellious, sin-cursed, and helpless people, and I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to make them my very own possession. I'm going to free them from their slavery. I'm going to bring them back to me. I'm going to send my only son to live for them and to die for them so that they could be reconciled to me. Jesus didn't send His Son, or God didn't send His Son to live and die for us because we are worthy. We are worthy because God sent His Son who lived and died for us. 
and has transferred, has given us his righteousness. While shame may encroach with a message, you will never be loved. You're too broken. At the incarnation, the father bellows, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Here is indisputable evidence. I have come for you. At the birth of Jesus, God would forever affirm his love for us, that he is for us and not against us, that he will never desert us, that he'll never let anything, not even our own sins, come between us. I love what Elise Fitzpatrick writes. She says, what on earth is the Son of God doing shivering there, covered in amniotic fluid and wrapped in coarse rags, lying in a feeding trough in a manure-filled barn? Why is he submitting himself to flawed parents? Why is he being baptized in a muddy river and starving in the wilderness while he defeats Satan's wicked attack? Why is he having dinner with a Pharisee uh, and while an immoral woman kisses his feet? Why is he shamed and humiliated, stripped and beaten? nailed to a cross. Why? So that right now and all during this season, you can know that you are not now nor will ever be alone. God's abiding presence, ours because of the grace of God in Christ. Now, what do people do when they've been saved? How do they respond to such a lavish demonstration of love? Look at verses 24 and 25. We'll wrap up with this. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. When Joseph wakes from a dream, what does he do? He believes what the angel has said to him, and he does what was commanded of him. He understands, he recognizes that the one who his wife is carrying, is the long-awaited Redeemer, the one the prophets talked about. He will be, I mean, get this, Joseph understands, he will be the earthly father of the Savior of the world. Talk about a responsibility, talk about a privilege, an honor, and he knows this will happen for no other reason than God's grace. God has poured out his grace, and what does Joseph do? When he woke from a dream, he did what the Lord commanded. Here's our final point this morning. The grace of God, rightly understood, moves those who receive it to joyful and spontaneous obedience. When Joseph is confronted with this vision, this dream from an angel, when he wakes up, he promptly obeys the angel's instruction. This is what grace does. When we understand how much, and I understand, I know this because 19 and a half years of ministry, I understand. I've heard this all the time. Yeah, but won't if we tell people that they're forgiven by God in Christ and God loves them no matter what? If we preach grace, won't it make people lazy and won't it make people apathetic and, and won't they just sort of live life for themselves? That's not how it works. When those who have been given grace, when those who have received grace understand it, it moves them to worship. It moves them to gratitude. It compels them to obey. The Apostle Paul says, and we'll talk more about this next week as we close the arc on this series, it's grace that trains us. It's grace that mobilizes us to renounce ungodliness. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote this, While I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. 
But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and sought my good. You can't understand the birth of Jesus unless we understand the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. The whole gospel of Matthew, the whole story has to be understood in light of its end. Jesus came not just to be born, but to die. Jesus came to forgive us our sins by becoming our substitute. He was born to die for us so that those who put their faith in Him could be free from the burden of being perfect, free from the condemnation of the law, free from the power and the tyranny of sin. And through His grace, as we understand it, we are compelled to obey Him. But even when we fail, which we will, His grace is sufficient. His forgiveness in Christ is complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a... What an incredible and in some ways mind-bending reality that you came to us and that in Christ you tabernacled with us, God with us, God become flesh for our salvation. And as we think about the incarnation, the significance of it, the beauty of it, the power of it, what it actually means for us. Will you move our hearts to more enthusiastic worship, greater humble submission to your word, a deeper love for you and our neighbor, and a burning desire to see you glorified in all of life, not just in our life, but all around the world, in people all across the world of every tribe, tongue, and nation, so that they can receive the forgiveness that is ours in Christ, which will in turn lead them to worship and obey you. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.